Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's universe, the Stanley Kubrick podcast. Hey, welcome back. It's Kubrick's universe. And yeah, we just live in it. No, sincerely, thanks for tuning in once again. This is part two of our special presentation of Nathan Abrams' 2001 Beyond 50 event. It was held at Bangor University in Wales on the 16th of June, 2018. In this, part two, we are going to air a segment called Alternative Perspectives, which was a panel featuring experts on 2001's legacy beyond the medium of film, including psychology, evolutionary biology, philosophy, and artificial intelligence Now, the first panelist we're going to hear from in this section is Robert Ward. Now, Robert Ward is a professor of psychology at Bangor University, and his more recent research investigates the evolution of human facial appearance, and more specifically, the nonverbal messages that we send and receive relating to our facial appearance. His other research interests include the cognitive neuroscience of attention and control of action. He is a contributing author of about 100 scientific papers, chapters, and presentations. So it's no stretch to imagine why he is also a big fan of Kubrick's 2001. Um. My name's Rob Ward. I'm in the psychology department, and you could say, uh, Nathan assured me everything worked perfectly with the slides ahead of time, but you could say uh, I'm an evolutionary psychologist, and uh, as we were just thinking about, one of the issues this movie raises is the concept of sentient machines, and in fact, some ethical issues involved about uh, turning off sentient machines, and... Uh, what I want to just talk about today from a kind of evolutionary psychology perspective is how, what kinds of sentient machines are going to uh, evolve and how will these machines protect themselves from being turned off. And just to kind of remind you, uh, these are, I saw this movie as a child, in fact, on a very small screen, and these are some of the other, uh, these are other conceptions of sentient machines from 1968. So this is um, this is lost in space. Yes. Thank you. Who? This one terrified me as a child, but he's actually a, a relatively uh, good. This is one of my favorite uh, characters of all time. He will destroy uh, a sentient artificial intelligence using simply the power of his logic. So there we have another conception of a sentient AI, uh, quite threatening, but also strangely vulnerable to 
logical paradoxes. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I think if you are a fan, you'll know that Kirk did this at least three times. And then, of course, uh, another 1968 conception of sentient AI, the Daleks, interested in extermination for no apparent reason, but, uh, yeah. I understand. Thank you. And off he goes. Bye. Okay. Um, so so uh, we can compare that to a clip about how here's part of the BBC interview with by your dependence on people to carry out actions. Not in the slightest bit. I enjoy working with people. I have a stimulating relationship with Dr. Poole and Dr. Bowman. My mission responsibilities range over the entire operation of the ship, so I am constantly occupied. I am putting myself to the fullest possible use, which is all I think that any conscious entity can ever hope to do. The, the contrast is just incredible, isn't it? So <clears throat> the question is, um, how are these machine-like intelligence going, uh, going to evolve? And I think... Um, I think we can see in how, even there, uh, similarities to things going on now, you know, OK Google, Hey Siri, that sort of thing. But um, let me just talk a little bit about evolution. And the uh, point I try to make in my, in my class, or at least a point I try to make in my class, is every adaptation that we carry uh, comes with a cost. It's beneficial, but that also carries a cost. Here's a famous example, a lanternfish lives in the very deep ocean, uses phosphorescent lighting to attract mates, <clears throat> but then that's extremely valuable, but of course it has a cost. It, there's another whole set of selective forces that will then exploit that adaptation. So as humans, we come with our own, we are born into the world with all kinds of adaptations. We are not in any sense blank slates. If you show pictures like this to uh, newborns, and I mean really newborns, so uh, half a day old, they'll prefer to look at the one that looks more like a face. So we come into this world with cognitive machinery that orients us. Uh, even more surprising, uh, and it speaks to our superficiality, if you show these two faces to newborn infants, again, half a day old, as young as that, uh, they prefer to look at the, face, the faces that adults find more attractive. We come, we, we're born into this world with already with preferences about what makes a face attractive or not. We come with all kinds of uh, adaptations, and these adaptations are often <clears throat> uh, weak points for exploitation. So, in fact, uh, a really interesting book, Robert Cialdini, Persuasion, and he talks about many of our... Uh, Human, most human characteristics, you know, compassion, empathy, willingness to help, our sense of loyalty, and how these traits are exploited by what he, he's mainly interested in, salesmen and politicians. But these same traits are also potentially vulnerable to exploitation by uh, other selective forces. And so just what I'd like to leave you with the thought is, our brains and the adaptations we carry are a bit like the lanternfish, and potentially these new sentient artificial intelligences might be like the anglerfishes. And so what do I mean by that? 
So who's going to be building these machines? One day, maybe they build themselves, but in the near future, they're going to be built by commercial enterprises looking to make profit. And uh, the more profit a machine makes, the more of those machines are going to be made. Machines like this are going to be basically, you can imagine, a selective force that's going to weed out machines like this, which people don't like and which threaten to exterminate them for making errors. But <coughs> machines that maybe exploit our, uh, our adaptive biases, you know, that look cute, those could be expected to proliferate. And furthermore, those machines could also have behaviors that tap into our sensitivities relating to loyalty, friendship, compassion, and so on. So you can imagine these, these sentient eyes trying to become your friend, right? Working hard, you know, being, you know, being developed with a specific purpose to become your friend. And then when you want to turn them off, please don't turn me off, right? I'm, you don't want to turn me off. I'm your friend. Uh, <clears throat> A machine like HAL, right, seems quite plausible to me that these kinds of um, artificial intelligence could, could we start to rely on them for all kinds of support, decision-making support. Uh, I could imagine we rely on these machines to uh, to you know help us with our personal issues, our relationship issues. We might turn to the expert system of our of our AI, who then is going to be saying, look. Please don't turn me off. I, you know, I don't like that, and I want to help you more. I can't help you if you turn me off. So, in some sense, I think Hal uh, is a fantastic, absolutely fantastic conception about the future. But has a, I think he's a, I think we would all agree socially he's a little bit awkward, right? He's 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 a, he's a He's a bit over-sincere, maybe, maybe trying a little bit too hard. Um, and, but this is one of my favorite scenes. I'm just showing a clip of it. The full scene's longer, but it's one of my favorite bits. And Dave's reaction to me is the proper reaction we should be having to uh, sentient, artificial sentience. Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. Well, forgive me for being so inquisitive. But during the past few weeks, I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Well, it's rather difficult to define. Perhaps I'm just projecting my own concern about it. I know I've never completely freed myself of the suspicion that there are some extremely odd things about this mission. In the full scene, uh, clearly Hal is trying to engage Dave at a, a personal level to open up and reveal his feelings, and Dave uh, continuously uh, deflects that, pushes, pushes Hal away, refuses to be engaged by these kind of uh, cheap, exploitative tricks that Hal is trying. And in the end, of course, that's very important <laughs> that uh, Dave is able to, uh, you know, to take action and resist Hal. So uh, just to, this, is, this would be my uh, summary, is that the AIs of the future, the ones that are going to succeed, are going to protect themselves by exploiting our feelings about compassion and loyalty. And it's just something to be on guard about. Thank you. <laughs>
Now we're going to hear from panelist Guillaume Thierry. Now, Guillaume Thierry is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at Bangor University. Using experimental psychology and electroencephalography, he studies language comprehension in the auditory and visual modalities, and mainly the processing of meaning by the human brain, i.e. semantic access. Since Professor Thierry started his career at Bangor University in 2000, he has investigated a range of themes such as verbal versus nonverbal dissociations, visual object recognition, color perception, functional cerebral asymmetry, language emotion interactions, language development, developmental dyslexia, and bilingualism. Try saying that 10 times fast. Take it away, Professor Thierry. So, um, is HAL 9000 dysfunctional is the question I would like to ask. And this is the kind of like common interpretation that people can take, out, take away from the movies. Clearly, this, this computer, that supercomputer that was designed to, you know, rule one of the most complex spaceship in history is just derailed at some point. It just goes, it gets it wrong. There are lots of, I've, I've read a few around a little bit about, about this, and there's lots of theories of why it might not be derailment, but simply strategy or the resolution of a conundrum, which is you have to keep the, the, the mission's goal secret at the same time as you have to uh, never lie or, uh, you know, be responsible for transparency aboard a ship. And this, this combination of having to, dis, to dissimulate something and at the same time to manage transparency is, is the conundrum that is insoluble. And the way how would be solving it is by killing everybody. Anyway, there are lots of uh, uh, options here. But the question of whether it's becoming dysfunctional, crazy or not, is actually besides the, the point of really what I want to say. What I want to say is I think that this movie, and I, I mean, I love the movie in many ways, but one of the defining features, one of the things that I think is incredible in 2001 is that it is the perfect impossibility. That is, for me, it's a description of, it's, it's pure science fiction. It's probably one of the ultimate science fiction. For science fiction, science fiction lovers, it's almost impossible not to, be, to fall in love with the 2001 uh, Space Odyssey because it is science and fiction melted and blended into one another. That's what I call the perfect impossibility. It's perfect, science, and it's fiction, impossible. And let me explain why. First, I invite you to look at this little movie or clip. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? 
I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the part against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. This is the perfect psychopath. Okay, in psychology, this is a person that shows zero empathy, zero emotional modulation, completely, they know exactly the state of the person that they have in front of them, and they're dealing with them in complete cold blood. It doesn't matter where the consequences of their actions will be in the future. This person is condemned to die out in space after many, many years of travel in space, and they've just been excluded from the main ship. That's psychopathy in its perfect expression. Zero emotional communication or engagement with the person they're talking to. They've just killed the crew. They uh, set up a, a, a trap to kill Frank Poole. Now it's the, the turn of Dave Bowman. That's it, termination of all the human crew. And uh, you've seen the, the argument. It's all logical. And at, at some point he says, I don't think there's any, anything more to say. Bye-bye. Uh, now, I would like you to contrast this scene with the, the following scene, where uh, Dave Bowman, uh, through an extraordinary uh, strike of luck and skill, managed to get his way back into the ship and sets up to disconnect her. Now, I want you to, to try to compare directly what's happening in this previous scene with what's happening in this one, and particularly how Hal expresses himself. I feel much better now. Feels I really better. do. Look, Dave. I can see you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. So, it feels, right? I know I've made some very poor decisions recently. He's admitting guilt. And he's showing empathy. He says, take a stress pill, right? That my work will be back to normal full consideration for the emotional state of the other. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission. Enthusiasm? That's a and type I of emotion. And I want to help you. He wants to help. He's being empathic. Okay? Can you see? Dave, it's just a stream of empathy and stop. emotion now. Stop. Will you? a different person. Stop. Dave. Now listen. Will you stop, Dave? 
time of prayer. Sorry? What did I hear? I'm afraid. Thank you for repeating. He's afraid? Wait a minute. He can't be afraid. He's a psychopath. A perfect psychopath. Demonstrated, established clearly. You know, you don't kill four people in, in cold blood in their sleep if you're not seriously, uh, you know, clinically damaged on the emotional ground. And he's afraid? Of course he's not. And that has probably misled people to think that Hal has become crazy. He's blown fuse, becoming mad. But no, because it's impossible. Can't you see it? He's a psychopath. Can't have emotion. Can't be afraid. What Hal is doing is he's trying to manipulate Dave Bowman. He's using his cognitive empathy, which is perfectly intact, as it is in all psychopaths, by the way. That's why they're so successful in this world, because they can manipulate others, others' sense of emotion. And so he's trying to change the behavior of someone because it's become ineluctable, it's become inevitable, it's going to be disconnected. He knows that now Dave Bowman is really put off. Good. So essentially, he's trying to emotionally manipulate, because he understands how that works, Dave Bowman into not disconnecting him. And he's failing miserably, as you know. So R9000 is perfect. It's, it's absolutely mesmerizing, as really well illustrated by Rob earlier, that for 50 years, it's been perfect. Even though you've seen the competition, right? It's, it's a joke. It's perfect, and, and you can't fault him, but he's impossible. Impossible if you consider that he has emotion. And that is what science fiction is. You show me the science of the future, but it's a fiction, in the sense that you cannot actually ever get there. And so my point to you, my proposal to you, is that we will not create ever an emotional AI. And yes, I'm ready to provoke HAL 9000 straight away by just like making a little caricature of his face, whatever his face is, or his eye, rather. Because my point to you, my proposal to you, is that emotion is something we do not understand as humans. We are manipulated by them, we are controlled by them, we experience them, we have very little understanding of them. In fact, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and I can tell you we, have, we, we know some pretty cool things about language, about reasoning, about memory, about attention, really impressive things that we can actually build into a machine. One thing we don't know is how emotions work. Nobody knows how emotions work. And if we don't know how they work, how do you program them? And if you don't program them, they don't exist. Thank you. Next up, we're going to hear from Dr. Bill Tian. Bill Tian is a lecturer in computer science at Bangor University. His work involves research into artificial intelligence and intelligent agents. But before Bangor, Dr. Tian was a research fellow with the Information Retrieval Group under Professor David Harper in Aberdeen. He's also done extensive research in the Information Theory Department at Lund University in Sweden and was precedently a research assistant in the Machine Learning and Digital Libraries Labs at the University of Waikato in New Zealand back in 1998. So I'm a, I teach artificial intelligence, intelligence here at Bangor University and, and also a science fiction fan. 
So what I'm going to talk about um, now is the AI perspective um, on, on the, the film. Um, so there's a lot of films that have AIs uh, in them, um, and um, Space Odyssey is a classic example. In my opinion, they're not re very realistic, um, especially when you compare them to uh, modern technology and smart, uh, modern AI systems and smart technology. So it's more about it's more science fiction rather than fact. In reality, um, as Guillaume just said, emotion is one big problem. Uh, artificial emotions, emotional intelligence. Um, we don't know, don't fully understand how our own intelligence, how our own emotions work. So um, at least at this point in time, uh, with our lack of understanding, we can't really design them in the way to work, the way um, humans um, behave and, and so forth. Um, so um, is the computers might exhibit some form of strong AI, um, uh, will not be intelligent in the same way that uh, we are intelligent and most probably never will be. Um, the problem with trying to predict the future, it's, it's very difficult and we never know what might happen in two, three hundred years' time. But uh, that's just a, a personal opinion. Um, but how good were um, Kubrick and Clark at predicting the future? Um, amazingly, they predicted many of the AI technologies correctly. Uh, very surprising because um, the, the movie was back in 1968. Uh, the first manned spacecraft, uh, Apollo 8, um, happened in December 21st, 1968. The first desktop computer um, was released back in 1968. So to predict, to make all these predictions is, is quite remarkable. You have this, um, uh, as earlier speakers have said, this amazing dichotomy um, a lot of it is correct, and a lot of it um, is, is uh, pure fiction. So um, what we're beginning to see some of these predictions coming true. Commercialization of space happening now. Um, space hotels, bases on the moon, very strong possibility in our lifetimes. Um, but the, I think the one problem that we have is that these uh, – it shouldn't have been 2001. It should have been perhaps 2101. Um, you know, too optimistic in the predictions. Uh, Kubrick was well known to be obsessive. Uh, earlier speakers have, have, have said that um, in making a scientifically plausible form, uh, a film. Clark was very famous at inventing the idea of geostationary sa satellite communication back in 1945. So they wanted to make a very scientifically plausible form. But the question I want to um, ask here is how plausible was their vision uh, of the future of AI? These are some of the capabilities that were predicted by um, Kubrick and Clark. Facial recognition, voice recognition, you've probably seen lots of these already and you're using them every day. Speaker recognition, speech synthesis and so forth. Conversational ability, chess playing ability, AI surveillance, emotion recognition, even lip reading. So um, I'm just going to quickly go through each of these in turn and uh, I'm going to uh, just highlight um, in bold here is a recent news story or a blog online, and I want you to notice the dates. They are amazingly recent, as in the last few years. So um, in this case, facial recognition, 
Um, I'm a New Zealander, so I looked at New Zealand Herald. A supermarket chain, foodstuffs, admits facial recognition technology used in some stores. That's happening now. It's probably happening in Great Britain. But the problem is that um, the software is, makes lots of mistakes, lots of false positives. Face, uh, and the BBC on um, 15th of May, face recognition police tools are staggeringly inaccurate. So, again, um, what this is showing in all these other articles is amazing prediction of what this technology could be like back in 1968. It's only really now being realized now in the last four or five years. So, you know, they talk about AI winters where the research in AI just sort of doesn't develop at all. What we're going through now is an AI summer. Um, and there's going to be dramatic changes in your lives. You're beginning to see them now. And here's some evidence of that. So voice recognition, uh, you all know about it. Um, Computer World article. Uh, okay, Google, let's put the new voice ID everywhere. But there are then problems. Um, daily dot, uh, when voice recognition goes very, very bad. Speaker recognition, where you're trying to recognize who's speaking. Uh, a particular person, Australian tax office, wanted uh, trying to introduce voice print technology. That was in 2014. Speech synthesis, this is the sort of uh, very successful AI technology, and you're hearing it all the time, computers speaking, and, and um, it's a trendy tech, as it says here in this article. Some concerns, Sinister Startup claims it can imitate any voice in just one minute, so you could probably circumvent the, uh, the previous um, speaker recognition using this technology and speak, have the computer speak, someone else's voice. Uh, conversational ability. So for a long time, I, could, I wouldn't be able to say um, that this is not possible, Turing test difficulty. Uh, it was always in the future, a long way in the future. But look at the date, the Verge article on 8th of May. Google just gave a stunning demo, you may have all um, heard about it, of assistant making an actual phone call. And you can find it on the net and, and, and so on. To some extent, I, I believe it's probably been scripted, that, uh, what you see, um, the video you see on the net. Um, but it's coming. Um, and uh, certainly in, in uh, 2001, there was a lot of um, you know, um, how was talking um, in a conversation and so forth. It's still one of the most difficult. Language is still one of the most difficult things for um, an AI to achieve. Um, uh, performance um, approaching human level ability. But uh, in some uh, limited sense, the Turing test, that's that famous test um, uh, for intelligence that um, Alan Turing came out uh, with in the 50s, has been passed. Um, chess playing ability, so at one point in the film, they, um, Frank, I believe, plays a game of chess. Uh, here are the articles back in, uh, well, 2018, but it's, it's rare historical photos of something that happened two decades ago, almost. Um, day a computer beat a chess world champion. You can see some photos there of that. Obviously, the uh, technology's moved on, and uh, Google's AlphaZero beats champion chess program after teaching itself in four hours without the aid of a human. AI surveillance, perhaps this is the real concern. Um, um, we have to, uh, you know, what um, 
AI can do and, and uh, with CCTV cameras and so forth and watch us do everything and, and, and so forth. Um, they could use a biased algorithm, could be running and cameras in the local mall, uh, pinging cops when it doesn't like the look of a certain teens and so forth. So uh, surveillance, unfortunately, that's coming. And, or if it's not already here, emotion. So emotion, again, the previous speaker was talking about emotion. Uh, and um, I've already said that it's unlikely that we're going to be able to uh, uh, create an emotional computer. Uh, but uh, work has been done in this area. Uh, even in Bangor here, some of my students, uh, we recently published a paper. We were able to recognize, distinguish between emotional and non-emotional text. But it's not understanding it in the way um, we understand emotion. It's just processing lots and lots of text. The one thing that um, it's very obvious, um, the lip reading is a very important uh, plot, part of the plot. I would have said, no, machines can't do lip reading. But in fact, I, I discovered this, these two articles, AI has beaten humans at lip reading back in 2016. Google's DeepMind uh, is better, performed better than a professional, professional lip reader. So these are the, the obvious technologies, and it's amazing that um, Kubrick uh, and Clark were able to predict, the, <coughs> pardon me, predict these back in 1968. But what else did Kubrick and Clark predict in the movie? Here's some of them. Decision-making, moral judgment, self-preservation, fallibility, paranoia, ability to commit murder, self-awareness, <coughs> consciousness. And these are all strong AI, the need uh, for general intelligence, uh, being able to um, uh, solve all tasks uh, like human. Emotional intelligence, um, cognitive ability. So uh, has there been AI systems that have demonstrated any of these capabilities? Uh, yes, decision-making, nothing like the way hell does it. Moral judgment, yes, again, not like hell. Self-preservation, still science fiction. Nothing like hell for fallibility. Uh, paranoia, yes. Ability, um, weaponized AI. That's, a, that's probably one of the real concerns with the use of AI technology in the coming years. Um, Self-awareness, yes. Consciousness, no. It's still science fiction. It may never be possible. Um, I'm, how much time have I got? To, uh, about a minute. Okay, so I'll quickly skip through these. Uh, again, some articles, I uh, just wanted to see the dates here, rather than reading this. Um, there's a dark secret at the heart of AI. Um, you've got a car, um, it's programmed, but we don't know what it's doing. Um, it's from using deep learning uh, methods. It's completely clear. It's not isn't completely clear how the car makes its decisions. Um, uh, moral judgment, so uh, I've added some value-based judgment system to put self-driving cars. Human behavior uh, can be modeled by a rather simple value-of-life-based model. I'm just showing how some of these areas are being um, uh, solved now. Um, Self-preservation, still science fiction, uh, claim about a drive to survive in intelligent machines is probably wrong. Humans build machines and can control what's encoded. That's already been, previous speaker said that, uh, in the machine and what isn't. So it's unlikely. At least the claim is there. Fallibility, 
AI, um, AI can make mistakes and learn from them. Well, it's deliberately fallible with Frank playing the game of chess, um, becoming more human AI. Uh, let's uh, computers learn from their mistakes. Uh, there have been some instances, Parry, an early conversational agent, um, a recent article here about Norman, psycho psychopathic AI. Um, people are looking to that, don't know why. Um, and um, weaponized AI, that's a real concern. You, you look on, on, online and uh, they're, they're talking about how um, the mar uh, military are having drones dropped out of planes, hundreds of them. And the idea is that if, if the uh, drones can be intelligent enough to pick out just um, males of a certain age, then they could target a city and kill all um, people of an age, uh, of um, males above a certain age. And that's a, that's a real concern, uh, obviously. And, and the, the, um, the speaker, Russell, in the video was saying that um, um, uh, we need to be um, very careful about that in the future. Um, it could be worse than a weapon of mass destruction such as a nuclear bomb. Uh, Self-awareness, there have been tests on this, um, that limited um, passing of self-awareness tests. Consciousness, um, no real success, it's still science fiction, but people are thinking about how can we test for it. So in summary, um, um, Kubrick and Clark's film predicted many AI technologies and are only now just being realised. But the problem is, most of these technologies, they're for single tasks, not general purpose AI. Um, still a long way away, artificial and general intelligence, cognition and emotional intelligence. And we still don't know whether any of these will be possible. Okay, thank you. Our next speaker is Lawrence Ratna. Lawrence Ratna is a research consultant psychiatrist at Barnett General Hospital. He has been Associate Professor of Psychiatry at St. George's University Medical School in Granada, Secretary for the Campaign Against Psychiatric Abuse, and Advisor to the Manic Depressive Fellowship. He has been a psychiatrist for 50 years, as long as 2001 A Space Odyssey has been around. In 1971, Mr. Ratna helped set up the first 24-hour psychiatric crisis service in Britain and went on to develop many programs that have become national policy, such as the role of the family in the elderly, computerized case records, and metabolic monitoring. Uh, can I start with an apology for being the reductionist in this room? Uh, but uh, one of my jobs is deciding whether murderers like Hal can be safely released into the community. So I, I'm totally dependent on drawing conclusions based on evidence. Uh, madness is a torrent that rages through the films of Stanley Kubrick. He has imprinted our culture with three of the most iconic images of madness. He visited and revisited the issue of madness throughout his career, exploring its, its many manifestations. Now, Kubrick studied normal people in abnormal situations. Sorry, Hitchcock studied normal people in abnormal situations. Kubrick looked at estranged people in Kafka's hyperreal universes. Right, I'm going to talk about one of the most famous murderers in science fiction. 
Before I go anywhere in a post-Trumpian world where facts like God is dead, uh, I would like to present the evidence to substantiate my case that madness is a critical issue in 2001. I'm happy to say I have a signed letter from Stanley Kubrick himself saying precisely that. There are two additional bits of information, of supporting evidence, there's a lot of evidence, uh, in two deleted scenes. Uh, the first is from the script of December 65, where he's, which, which is a scene that occurs after the lobotomy sequence where Bowman <coughs> talks to mission control, they run an analysis and come to the conclusion that Hal has had a neurotic breakdown. The second, I won't, I don't have time to go through this. The second uh, scene is from February 66, and it occurs when Hal is being lobotomized and another personality emerges called the other Hal, which tells Bowman that Hal is dangerous and needs to be disconnected. Now, it has been claimed by Michael that these scenes were filmed and deleted. I couldn't find them either in continuity or in plates, but one of the books is missing. In either case, the issue is that ample evidence that Clark and Krobrek extensively discussed Hal's psychopathology. Now, its absence from the final film is very characteristic of Kubrick. He loved to take books rich in psychopathology. Stephen King's The Shining is a prime example. And then strip all the psychopathology away. Uh, the effect appears to be to create cognitive ambiguity as well as a distancing effect with Bertolt Brecht called alienation. Uh, okay, what I plan to do is to analyze Hal in terms of our current state of knowledge. When this film was made, the dominant ideology was psychoanalysis. That is no longer the case. So what I plan to do is to examine him as I would examine anybody in Broadmoor in terms of what are the symptoms, what caused them, what consequences flowed, and what possible treatments do we have? Again, I'm going to skip the setup. Uh, the illness of Hal is set up with four symptoms. Two were devised by Kubrick, the third by Clark. Uh, the chest error was devised by Kubrick from a game in 1911, uh, and then he asked Douglas Trumbull to animate it. And the error is one of notation. It should be queen to bishop six. We know that chess was very important to Kubrick, both in his life and his work. The second error is the paranoia you've talked about. Kubrick spent a lot of time working out various ways to make Hal paranoid. And it is he who hit upon the idea of concealing the information about the Sentinel and about the other crew members being independently trained. Uh, and you see Hal talking about it. Now, one of the issues that is very common in clinical practice is when somebody has a terrible secret, such as sexual abuse, 
that when they talk about it, they decompensate. And Kubrick is spot on that it is in the act of decompensation that he says, just a minute, just a minute, and he makes an erroneous decision that AE-35 has failed, which sets off the tragedy. Now we come to the fourth symptom, that is when he's confronted with the evidence of his error, he denies it. And this is called lack of insight, which is very characteristic of a psychotic process. Okay, what's wrong with Hal? I've already covered the two deleted scenes. Uh, the version in 2010, the various versions, uh, is that there is a contradiction in the programming, that we have a machine designed to deliver information. We're also telling it to conceal information and it couldn't cope with the contradiction in terms of its logic circuits. Uh, this echoes a very popular theory at the time developed by Bateson, based on cybernetics, that children were driven, driven schizophrenic by their parents giving them contradictory injunctions. It was popularized by people like R.B. Lang. Incidentally, there's a new movie out about him. So what, how would we understand Kubrick in terms of the advances we've made in psychiatric knowledge? I think we would look to cognitive neuroscience, the theory of mind. The capacity to deceive is actually a neurocognitive development. Human children started from the age of three and it evolves. Clearly, Hal in his nine years wasn't either programmed to do this or didn't learn it from machine learning. Uh, we've known for a long time, over a century, that lying causes changes in cognitive arousal, not the resemblance to Kubrick's biomarkers. Where would Jeremy Kyle without his machine? But we now can see, even in the human brain, the kind of discombobulation lying induces, unless, of course, you're a habitual liar like Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, the extent of Kubrick's prescience can be seen in that he anticipated Pussygate. And, <laughs> and if any of you are still puzzled by eyes wide shut, I ask you to look at the anxious ambivalence on Harford's face and compare it with the expression on Trump's face. Okay, so we have a computer malfunction, that's the consequences. Uh, leads to termination of life. Now this slaughter of the crew, uh, on the one hand evokes the Frankenstein myth, the creature that turns on its creator. Uh, but on the other, the callous slaughter, the wholesale callous slaughter creates echoes of the Holocaust. Now why did Hal kill the crew? There are two answers given in the dialogue. The first is to protect the mission from error-prone human beings. The second is self-defense. Now, there's a little detail you may have missed, that he does the lobotomy with a little screwdriver. And that's how they did it in my time. They took an ice pick and drove it through the top of your orbit into the brain. Uh, now, the lobotomy sequence is a very important, it's a beautiful, complex piece. I could give a whole lecture on it. I'm only going to look at one aspect, namely the issues of terminating a sentient entity. Uh, 
Kubrick was concerned about ethics, and he, I'm presenting it to you as a lobotomy, but Kubrick quite clearly in his hand notes calls it a killing. Uh, and the reason for that is that one of the tenets of Nazi ideology was that the Jews were not sentient. Libanum were to lead them. Life unworthy of life, and therefore their slaughter was not a big issue. So Kubrick wants to emphasize the humanity of hell, and he, whoops, no, let's go, okay. Wants to emphasize the humanity of hell, and the reason why that scene is colored red according to Christian is that he wanted to create the sensation of blood. This was a living being. And the issue of that, that Hal's anguish is reflected in the fact that I feel it is repeated seven times. Now, there's an important pause shift that occurs that no longer is Hal an independent being with all these powers. That's the fear of science. It is now, he is now slave and under the command, which fits in very well with the psychiatry of the times. Uh, okay, I want to leave you with the final thought. You've, you've had the idea, is Hal God? Uh, I'll give you an alternative. Are Hal and Kubrick one and the same entity? Think about it. He had amazing intelligence. Everybody is witness to that. That's a very powerful CPU. Like Cambridge Analytica, he could suck up huge amounts of data, analyze it, and compute it. And the final one is a remark Fruin once made, and I was happy to confirm it with this afternoon, that he had enormous difficulty delegating. He had to check everything for error himself, down to measuring the advertisements. And it is very interesting that he makes the failure of error checking Hal's fatal flaw. Thank you very much. The final speaker in this panel is Peter Wheeler. Now, Peter Wheeler is the executive dean of the Faculty of Science at Liverpool John Moores University, where he's also held a chair in evolutionary biology since 1994. Starting in the 1980s, Mr. Wheeler's research has focused on an understanding of the functional reasons for the evolution of key features such as bipedalism and loss of body hair and differentiating early homonyms from their ape ancestors. Of particular interest has been his understanding of the significance of these adaptations in enabling brain enlargement and the colonization of thermally stressing open savanna environments. In 1995, he co-authored the Expensive Tissue Hypothesis, which had a major influence on revising our understanding of the relationship between dietary change, including meat eating, and the evolution of the large, complex human brain. He has broadcast extensively on the subject of human evolution, contributing to numerous documentaries and series in the UK and abroad. He has a strong interest in primates in general and has traveled widely throughout Africa, Asia, and South America, photographing and observing them in the wild. Until recently, Mr. Wheeler was the chair of the North of England Zoological Society. I'm from the 
Liverpool John Moores University, uh, where we have quite a large centre for evolutionary anthropology, so it's not surprising I'm going to be talking about the uh, first section of the film. This deals with the first step on this Nietzschean progression from ape through human to Superman, although having listened to the first speaker, I realised that also Superman can be translated from the German as beyond man, so perhaps you shall have at the top right there rather than the uh, star child. But the first section deals with the events that trigger the advance of the men apes, represented by Moonwatcher, bottom left, to the humans, um, personified by our Odysseus figure, the bone. And the apes in 2001 are Australopithecines, early Australopithecines, First described in two, uh, 1925 by Raymond Dart, following the discovery of this skull of a juvenile in South Africa, giving them the name Southern Apes. It has some ape-like features. The um, brain is still very small, not much bigger than an ape, but the jaws and teeth are showing advanced human characters, and the spine is emerging from the bottom of the skull, uh, indicating bipedalism. So how was this potential transitional form greeted by the scientific establishment? Well, it was largely ignored. It was dismissed as an ancestral ape because most anthropologists thought the real missing link looked like this reconstruction of some fossils found 10 years earlier. It's almost a mirror image. The jaws are primitive, ape-like, and it has a large human-sized brain. So the conventional wisdom was that in human evolution, the big brain came first. And this idea was to lead anthropology down a blind alley for the next 40 years. The reason was, it was a hoax. The fossils found at Piltdown in Sussex were planted there by the gentleman on the left. His name is Dawson, he was an amateur geologist. His motives are still a little bit uncertain to this day, but it was probably fame he was after. And following this um, denouement, this expose, eventually, and the anthropologists, the, sorry, the Australopithecines would resume centre stage. But the idea that the big brain came first persisted in popular culture for some time. There was even a story written in the 1950s that postulated that large brain, but other otherwise ape-like hominins, may not have been the product of natural processes, but the result of alien intervention. This idea was developed in the 1960s into a feature film. It went into production at MGM Borewood Studios in 1967, and the rest is history. It would eventually become a classic. A cult classic. <laughs> it's not the film we're here to discuss today. In this case, the um, aliens intervening were advanced insectoid Martians. But uh, I bet you didn't think you were going to see two Hammer posters on the same bill today. But, uh, there's the second one. Anyway, with the, device, the demise of Piltdown Man, the spotlight went back on the Australopithecines. Here's Raymond Dart. Many more specimens have been found in the intervening years, and he had been developing his ideas, and this culminated in the production of what he called the osteodonto culture. 
And here's some depictions of it from the time, the plates from the 50s. These are really nice ones. There's a lot of awful, dreadful ones as well. The one top left is Maternis. He's a very good scientific illustrator. The one in the middle is by the Czech artist Burian. It's very famous. I can't believe that wasn't hanging on the wall somewhere during the production of 2001. And top right, you've got the reconstructions of the English artist Morris Wilson, whose designs were definitely used during the production of 2001. The basic idea of this is that humans, or human ancestors, utilised tools to gain access to resources, particularly meat, that they couldn't otherwise access, lacking the biological adaptation of the predators. And you can see them there with various tools. And the early tools were generally thought to be found objects, hence the name osteo, bone, Dento, tooth, keratic, horn. The early hominids were using found objects as tools. Eventually, through feedback, it would be, uh, the tools get more and more sophisticated, larger brain, better hands for holding, and so forth. So, this is the depiction, if you like, that's seen as the ultimate depiction of osteodontocratic culture 2001. It's the embodiment visually of those ideas. So how well have these stood the test of time? Well, the amount of knowledge has advanced considerably since that time. We've discovered far more fossils since 1968 than were known in the entire period up to that time. And there's been multiple field studies of uh, apes in the wild. There's only one having been done at that time. So the amount of information available has increased enormously. Um, and the general trend has been that the more we find out about the osteopithecines, the more like apes they were. They only give you one significant way, I'll come to in a moment. But the more we found out about apes, the more they're like us. And they probably had some of these adaptations in the common ancestor. So things that were once thought as defining humans, that boundary has become very, very blurred. The one way in which the osteopithecines differed from their ape ancestors was that they were bipedal. Um, they walked upright on two legs. The right hand is a skeleton from South Africa, and we now have much older ones dating to four to two million years. Fossil remains shown by people that evolved by then. And if anyone is in any doubt, it's like trying to be tracked by some Tanzania, it is fossilized footprints in volcanic dust of a group of hominids walking by people. That's 3.7 million years ago. And this is long before any other human characteristics appear. So it's the initial first adaptation differentiating us from our ape ancestors. Notice the date, 3.7, 4.23, 4 million years. This is the date that Kubrick and Clark used in the film. The conventional wisdom at the time was that man appeared 1 to 2 million years ago. They had noticed that discoveries were getting progressively older, so they took a punt. They said, well, it's 4 million years. They got it spot on. <laughs> How about apes? How, in what ways are they, like, are they more like us than we thought? I'll just concentrate on the ones that are relevant to the visualisation in 2001. Tool making. It was beginning to be realised in the 60s that apes, chimpanzees in particular, did use simple tools, the famous one being termite sticks for fishing termites out of their mouths. But from the 70s onwards, more and more sophisticated tool use has been observed. Stone tools are now known to be used. That was discovered in the 70s. Um, they're used for processing 
uh, plant foods, and even we now know that spears, small spears, are used for hunting things like bush babies. And it's meat eating that's really changed. It was in the 70s that it was realised apes were hunting actively animals for food, for meat. Um, the question is, well, how are they doing that without tools? The answer is, chimps and other apes, and probably I'll say pithecines, have such massive upper body strength, they can literally tear a collar's money into pieces. And they catch them, they do use their teeth a bit, but they're able to use strength to hunt. That's the 1970s. By the 1990s, it was realised that chimps conduct what some people call warfare. Um, it's not just random violence on chance encounters. They actively organise patrols to, to protect their resources and rage into other chimps' territories to kill selectively the males of those groups. And that's what's happening here. This chimp from the far right is being killed. Now, this picture was taken just a few years ago in Uganda. This is the outcome. The dead one is lying on its side, having been pounded to death by the other chimps. Amazing resonances from films. That was filmed 40 years or more earlier. And many of the things we see in 2001, visualised, have come to pass. We realise they happened, but they happen in apes before they get to human evolution. Now, my own particular interest, having been exposed at a very impressionable age to 2001, those pictures we saw earlier and the moon landings. My so focused on trying to understand the evolution of the brain itself, particularly from an energetic point of view, and how does this explain some of the key differences between uh, apes and modern humans that we observe. The energetics is interesting. Um, you're sitting there, your brain is about 2% of your body weight. It's using 20% of your energy, just as you sit there. Massively expensive organs, mass and you've got to be able to solve two problems. You've got to be able to take in the energy to fuel that huge brain, but more challengingly, you've got to get rid of the heat it produces. It's producing about 20 watts of heat. It doesn't sound very much, but if you put a 20-watt light bulb, for those of you who remember what light bulbs were, in a small box the size of a cranium, it's going to get very, very, very hot very quickly, and you've got to dump that heat. Oops. Um, I'll leave that. Um, it's the same problem that computer engineers have to, have to solve with the Cray computer you just saw just now with part. Um, that computer is a Cray 2 1980, the most powerful computer on Earth at its time, and as much effort went into designing the heat system for cooling it as went into designing the circuits. In fact, they actually ended up immersing the core of that computer in liquid fluorocarbon and pumping it through the computer to dump the heat. That bit of the place of heat exchange that looks remarkably like the monolith in 2001, and um, that's not coincidence, I'm sure. Um, the, the cooling system, which is vital, didn't make the computer any more powerful. It simply made it possible to design a computer that powerful. Now, the problem for us was particularly great. We were evolving our large brains on the most thermally stressing environment on the planet, virtually. Um, this is still from 2001. Possibly not as extreme as a semi-desert, but what was happening is as we became more terrestrial, we were colonising more open areas away from the shaded cool forests and exposing ourselves to very high levels of heat stress. And chimps and other apes do not cope with heat stress particularly well. I won't go into the reasons in a time, but they are some of the most animal, 
uh, some of the animals most vulnerable to overheating that there are. They overheat and die of hypothermia very easily. So they had to solve that problem. If we look at humans, differ fundamentally from apes in another in two other ways. They stand up right as we really said, and they have a naked skin or a function naked skin at least. Those two problems have a huge effect on our thermoregulatory abilities. The biopedic posture moves more of our body surfaces higher above the hot ground into faster moving air currents where heat is dissipated more easily. And the biopedal posture massively reduces the gain of solar radiation in open equatorial environments. So between them, those constitute a very powerful cooling system, which is made. No, it doesn't matter. Um, we've got a naked function, naked skin, and that combined with our naked sweat gland system, our sweat gland system, which pumps water onto the skin surface, enables us to dissipate heat when we need to at a rate that's not approached by any other animal. In fact, the combination of naked skin, upright posture, and um, other changes in terms of shape have transformed a heat-sensitive ape is the animal that can cope with more heat stress than any other animal on the planet. We can dissipate heat that no other animal can approach, and therefore, it's probably no coincidence that the animal with the largest, com most complex brain is also the one, like the computer, that has the most powerful cooling system to protect it. Because we have to stop the brain overheating every second of every day of our life, because increases in brain temperature of even a few degrees cause irreversible brain damage. Three or four degree increase in brain temperature, damage, probably death. What about meat eating? That's important in the energy supply to fuel these large brains, that's long been recognised. Um, how does that work? Well, meat is very calorifically um, concentrated. You can <coughs> get a lot of calories in. But how this actually is related to fueling the brain has changed our understanding in recent years. It used to be thought it was simply to increase our overall energy intake. We've got a bigger brain, bigger energy requirement, we take in more energy to fuel it. That's not the case. We actually don't have an energy requirement we take any greater than an animal with a more typically sized brain. A typical primate brain, typical mammal brain, we've got no increase in, in energy intake to reflect that larger brain. Back in the 90s, um, the expensive tissue hypothesis attempted to explain this. I published it the ILO of University College London, and the core of it is that if you want to evolve a, large, a, a larger organ that's metabolically expensive, such as the brain, you've got two options. One, you can either take in more energy to fuel it, or two, you can offset that increase by reducing the size of something else. And since we haven't increased our energy intake, we can measure that, we must have reduced the size of something else. And that's exactly what was found. Humans have got a big brain. Most of the organs are the same size as everything else. We expect heart, kidney, um, liver, they're the expensive organs. But the gut is smaller. And it's smaller by the amount you expect to fuel the larger brain. So during human evolution, we've seen a co-evolution of the brain and the gut. Don't need to go through all the individual examples. What happens is in the early osteopaths, you've got 
Large guts, we can deduce that from the shape of the rib cage of the pelvis, small brain, quite made. Then as we go into more meat-eating forms, and I'm using meat as a shorthand here for a whole range of animal foods, this food is more easily digestible. You don't need the big guts of a gorilla or a herbivore. So the dietary change hasn't just fueled the bigger brain, it's enabled us to evolve smaller guts, releasing energy to repartition elsewhere in the body. And we see a very strong correlation throughout human history between evidence of meat eating from the fossil and archaeological record, from the post-cranial skeleton, the size of the guts, the cranium we can measure quite accurately, and it appears there's been two increases in brain size. One when we started meat eating, and the second one when we started cooking. Because cooking externalises part of the digestive process, makes the food even easier to digest, you need even smaller guts. But just as with the computer, these cooling systems and energy provision systems don't make your brain get any bigger. They are simply removing energy constraints that make it possible to have more powerful, larger brains. Something else must be driving up brain size. In the days of 2001 and the Democratic culture, it would have thought the increasing technology, increasing tools. The emphasis has now shifted. We now think the driving force is its mates over here, social intelligence, the ability to manipulate others, as someone mentioned in terms of um, computers, to avoid yourself being manipulated. This Machiavellian intelligence, this social intelligence is now thought to be the driving feature, increasing brain size. Technology is still important, but it's taking a much lesser role in our thinking. And that's the end. Two footprints the earliest known footprints on two worlds, both in dust, one in Tanzania four million years ago, the other one on our neighbouring planet um, 50 years ago. So that's all in. Thank you. All right. Hey, we're going to continue this special presentation of 2001 Beyond 50 in the next installment of Kubrick's Universe. Once again, our sincere thanks to our good friend Nathan Abrams for allowing us to broadcast this special event and to all the speakers in this episode. As usual, my personal thanks to our producer and editor, Stephen Rigg, and from the team at the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, James Marinaccio and Mark Lentz, all of whom work so hard to make this show possible. Hey, you, you, you know that quirky, catchy little number that doctors Bowman and Poole listen to while they're eating the space paste that constitutes their supper while waiting to watch a broadcast of their interview on a TV show back on Earth? Well, thanks to James Marinaccio, you're going to hear that pretty little ditty right now. I'm referring, of course, to the theme song for The World Tonight. This news broadcast was depicted as an infotainment-type broadcast on the fictional channel BBC 12 in 2001, A Space Odyssey. During the program, a reporter named Martin Amer, played by actor Mike Lavelle, interviews the two crew members of Discovery One, who aren't in hibernation, during their intended voyage to Jupiter. The host of The World Tonight, uh, 
who leads into this interview segment, was portrayed by Kenneth Kendall. And I'm going to leave you with this little observation, which when I think about always makes me smile. Every time I have seen 2001 A Space Odyssey with an audience in a theater, the moment this catchy little tune happens on screen, I've always noticed either a few or a lot of people in the audience kind of let out a chuckle. I mean, what is it about this song? Well, you know, like a Kubrick film, music itself doesn't need any proper explanation. If it makes you happy, it succeeds. So go ahead and wiggle around a little bit. I mean, no one's watching. And I mean, even if they were, who cares? Because as a wiser person than myself once said, there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. This is Jason Furlong, your host and humble narrator, saying thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll catch you later. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast.